ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Allegations of Russian conspiracies to infiltrate, sow chaos, and meddle in Western countries are a constant source of clickbait in the press. The anxiety about Kremlin plots aren't new. They have been persistent since the Cold War. Russian politics is rife with conspiracy theories about the West, too. Everything bad that happens in Russia seems to be viewed as some anti-Russian plot that is hatched in the West. Even the collapse of the Soviet Union was, according to some Russian conspiracy theorists, hatched by Russia's enemies in the West. Why did conspiracy theories emerge and gain currency in Russia, and what role have intellectuals played in framing them? How has the image of a dangerous, conspiring West provide national unity that has helped legitimize Vladimir Putin's long rule? Here's Ilya Yablokov with some answers. Ilya Yablokov is a lecturer in the School of Languages, Cultures, and Societies at the University of Leeds, where he specializes in Russian media and international broadcasting, Russian politics, conspiracy theories, and nation-building in post-Soviet space. He's the author of Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World, published by Polity. Here's Ilya Yablokov. So you have uh, this really fascinating new book, and, and I know that a couple of other people are working on this subject of conspiracies, but the book is called Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories, and Post-Soviet Russia. And so I thought we'd start by just having you talk about what conspir- conspiracy theories are. Yeah, well, it's it's a very natural and very... Um um complicated at the same time question what is a conspiracy theory because uh this phrase has basically two very important parts first of all it's a conspiracy which which shows that that it, there is an agreement a secret agreement of uh, individuals uh behind the curtains uh with the view of increasing the power or gaining certain goal and then the second part is theory, right? And it's, it, it is quite an interesting where and when, uh, the word theory comes into play. And I've been reading recently a very interesting article by my colleague from uh, Cambridge, Andrew Mackenzie McCork, who was basically digging and trying to find when the, uh, phrase conspiracy theory comes, uh, up. And that's basically, it's 1881. In the United States, in the newspaper, and then journalists are arguing about the various um, kind of um, readings, interpretations of the murder of the president. 
which took place just recently in 1991. And so kind of theory refers to the, to the notion that it's an assumption. And this is an idea that's kind of this, this, this uh, idea that should be tested. But when, when we know what conspiracy theories are, we more or less understand what it is meant when a certain person says it's a conspiracy theory. It's not just an assumption, but quite often it's, it's the working, most, most often it's a dominant, uh, reading of the event. Let's say a murder, a theft or a tragedy, a catastrophe, a terrorist attack, whatever. So it's a it's it's a theory, but normally this uh, theory means that there is a certain kind of vision or complex of events that have been orchestrated by a secret group of people or individuals or creatures, whatever you like, uh, that aim at uh, making our life worse, at reducing the power of those individuals who read or who are getting familiar with that account of events. And so this theory means, basically, it's an interpretation of reality. So conspiracy theory, as opposed to just a conspiracy, which is part of reality, is a specific interpretation of reality uh, or perception of reality. That means that there is a secret group that is constantly controlling things or making things worse or making things as they like it to be. And certainly here it's a very direct connection to the phenomenon of populism, but it's a, perhaps it's a different question. You know, it's interesting. I mean, the idea of the conspiracy theory, right, there are a couple of things kind of stand out to me when I, when I hear about it or read about it, and that is one, that it's, it's seeking to uncover a deeper truth that is hidden from the normal like um, the normal dealings of, say, politics or events. And, and the other thing is, is that even though it, it, because it's a theory and a lot of times these theories are so outlandish, they defy a certain logic, they also tend to have a logic uh, of their own in them in the sense of, because it involves kind of powerful institutions or powerful people that seem to have a better insight into the workings of the world than, say, you or I do? Uh, well, I mean, that's the nature of conspiracy theories, because uh, so many scholars for decades uh, have tried to kind of, you know, deconstruct this uh, phenomenon. And uh, what, is, what is important, I think, is that when we look at conspiracy theories and, and the notion that there is a deeper truth in that, I don't think that we should be so prejudiced about conspiracy theories. And that is one of the ideas I'm trying to uh, put in my book. Conspiracy theories could be quite rational and they could be onto something. And we should not disregard that conspiracy, that the strife of conspiracy theorists to understand a certain, you know, parts of reality, trying to dig deeper, trying to uh, figure out what exactly happened, what really happened there. It's in, in the current circumstances of the world of the 21st century, with all the history of cover-ups, uh, state organi government organized plots, uh, revolutions, etc., or uh, and, or the power of intelligence services, or let's say uh, semi-government uh, or independent from governments uh, in um, 
powerful corporations, let's say, that so powerful that they can change the life of individuals. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of natural to look at conspiracy theories as part of as one of the interpretations, one of the in a way logical interpretations. So here, this deeper truth, I think it's it's very important. Although although sometimes and some individuals can go quite too far with looking for this deeper truth, if you know what I mean. So are are you saying that in a way, also saying that in a way, can, given the conditions of, say, you know, modern life or modernity, conspiracy theories uh, and, and they're, you know, they're, you know, it's interesting that you said that the term itself emerges in the 1880s, you know, in the late 19th century at the, at the beginnings of what we would call modernity in a way, that they arise as a reflection of the tendency of, I don't know, confusion, but also the power, the increased power, and also secretive, secret aspects of, say, government or intelligence services and other institutions that usually fall into, you know, these conspiracy theory narratives. So the conspiracy theories, in a way, reflect something about society. Definitely. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a coincidence that the, the term conspiracy theory emerges in the United States. Uh, kind of this uh, idea that everyone, every more or less, uh, every individual interested and well-educated too, because education is a very important aspect of conspiracy culture. Conspiracy culture, for example, in Russia and in Europe, start, kind of emerges because of intellectuals, because of those well-educated who are able to produce develop theories or ideas, uh, put them on paper, publish them and promote them and defend them, certainly. But also those who are well-educated to read those theories, they also con- consume that. So in a way, that's kind of, that's the modernity part. But also uh, uh, all these clues, and, and Andrew refers to this idea of Carlo Ginzburg and this, his idea of how scientific knowledge kind of emerges uh, from from day to day life, and and what is fascinating is the fact that kind of this uh, strive to to sound scientific, to find the proof, it emerges also first of all in the democratic society, such as the United States in the nineteenth century, and those people who were trying to kind of to to find a way to explain all these calamities or tragedies or change and reforms throughout the 19th century, they've been trying, at some point, they started to try and put their ideas into this scientific form of facts, of theories, of assumptions. But sometimes, certainly, these assumptions were going quite too far. And that's why kind of scholars like Richard Hofstadter in the middle of the 20th century called them paranoids and kind of ascribing this uh, mental illness to those kind of uh, partisan, quite controversial ideas. And that, uh, that is one of the problems we are now dealing with uh, when we talk about conspiracy theories. Uh, it is not that paranoid as we might think. Alex Jones might be paranoid at some point, but at the same time, Alex Jones is talking about some serious things, which we as as academics have to try to understand 
comprehend and figure out what is the connection of of the things that Alex Jones says, although they sound paranoid. But we need to find a rational grain in these ideas. We need to find a way what is the relationship between the current problems of our society and 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 these um, strange ideas such as conspiracy theory. Let's have you let's let's turn to Russia in particular and uh, have you give what is the the history of conspiracy theories and conspiracy thinking in, in Russia? Well, uh, it is quite interesting that conspiracy theories in Russia emerged more or less at the same time with uh, the European countries, with European societies. So at the end of the 18th century, conspiracy theories appeared among the high class, among the intellectuals, among the elites of the of, of Russia, of Catherine the Great. Uh, and they were basically, these ideas, were not particularly looking as classic conspiracy theories, right? With, uh, with lots of references, with, with some particular characters. Let's say it was a conspiratorial notion uh, that was saying that Russia... Uh, is uh, facing a number of challenges uh, set by the European powers. And these challenges are preventing Russia from fulfilling its role as the great uh, geopolitical power. And so the, the, it was the first account, and uh, Andrei Zorin was writing about that back in 2001. Um, but when conspiracy theories emerge, properly and become the part of the mainstream political and intellectual life is the mid-19th century. And the result of it, again, is the catastrophe of Russian uh, military in the Crimea, during the Crimean War. And so the changes that take place in Russia afterwards, uh, they all contribute to the um, development of conspiracy theories. So on the one hand, we know that after uh, this Crimean defeat in mid-1850s, uh, Russian society started to modernize due to the reforms of Alexander II. And uh, uh, so we know that there were more educated people uh, in 20 years' time, in 30 years' time, and there were more um, kind of the, the society is changing because lots of people are moving from villages to cities and they basically create a new way of life. And other things happen to them. They, 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 they ruin their traditional connections, family connections, conservative connections, and they become kind of a part of the new society, the urban society, where myths and legends and gossips also start playing a much, much bigger role. Plus, add to this the freedom of press, a short one in the 1860s, 1870s. And then certainly all these factors kind of helped to promote uh, conspiracy culture. But the, the, the real source of this conspiracy culture in the 19th century, in the second half of the 19th century, is conservative thinkers uh, who became uh, prolific during the time of Alexander III, during the counter-reforms. And these were the intellectuals that helped promote these ideas of anti-Western conspiracy theories among Russian intellectual and political elite. Uh, and again, just like at the end of the 18th century and, and the end, at the end of the 19th century, the notion is that the, the major threat is coming from the West 
as 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 a single undifferentiated entity it's uh, which was treated by the conservatives as a very dangerous entity that, that the entity that prevents russia from feeling its global mission right so it's it this idea is very this kind of the conspiracy culture in that sense is a very very much ingrained in the conservative culture of russia in a way in the culture of the slavophiles but 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 at the same time we see that there were there was a period when the Catholics were perceived as basically the thief's column inside of the Russian society Russian imperial society and Mikhail Katkov was writing about that. Then later during the wave of anti anti-Semitism, uh, it was the Jews, and in that sense again Russian conspiracy culture was more or less on the same pace with the European conspiracy culture because at the end of the 19th century European anti-Semites were promoting more or less the same ideas right but then again the next very important step to the Russian conspiracy culture was the uh, time after the revolution and especially the time of the Cold War because uh, because in the Bolshevik uh, kind of ideology the world was divided between the socialist camp and the capitalist camp. And this ultimate Manichaean division of society between the good and the bad, uh, that was the key for explaining why conspiracy theories should work and why conspiracy theories can explain uh, contemporary politics, right? And so in that sense, certainly the period of the Cold War was uh, the major kind of formative period for Russian conspiracy theories and especially Russian anti-Western conspiracy theories. But it's not that simple because uh, what I think happened in the 20th century with regard to Russian conspiracy culture or Soviet conspiracy culture is that in Russia, there were in the Soviet Union, there were two conspiracy traditions or conspiracy cultures, let's put it that way. So on the one hand, there was the official one where the West was condemned, criticized, and accused of plotting against the Soviet Union, right? And here there were several steps, the 1930s, the Great Purges, and then and certainly the post-war uh, repressions, and, and then the ideology of the Cold War, as I said. So anti-espionage ideas, then the novels that were published with the support of the KGB, such as Nikolai Yakovlev's um, novel, but at the same time, if you look at the underground culture, we're going to see quite a lot of uh, conspiracy theories that existed as a part of the dissident culture. So they had nothing to do with the official Russian uh, Soviet ideology, but, but they were important, for example, for the far-right organizations and groups. So again, a part of this um, kind of culture was the notion of uh, of Jews as the major plotters against the Russian people, and then also this this idea of Khazaria, uh, so Eurasianists, so all these um, usual suspects that we we, we discuss today as part of this far right milieu, they've been uh, they've been developing as a part of the underground culture, and the famous face of Russian post-Soviet conspiracy culture, Alexander Dugin, was basically the product of this uh, culture, in a way, right? And, 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 so, and so by the time in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapses, we see that there were different uh, groups and different 
um, kind of dimensions of this conspiracy culture that, with the freedom of speech that was granted by Gorbachev, uh, became free and and started to develop very rapidly. And so by the end by, by the end of uh, let's say 2017, we see that they they totally uh, merged with two kind of two of them have ner- have merged successfully. You know, one of the things I was I was really struck by, and because mostly because I didn't think about it, but it makes complete sense, and that is the role. And you've already mentioned this, and that is the role of intellectuals. Because you know, th- when you think of conspiracy theories, there's a certain prejudice, or at least I, I apply a certain prejudice to it in the sense of, well, you know, the people who devise these things, they're not. You know, they're more on the Alex Jones side of things rather than on the traditional intellectual side. But you you make a really convincing case and it makes sense in the context of, you know, modern media, uh, you know, especially beginning in the late 19th century. And one of the the figures that I was really struck by uh, his presence, and that is Gleb Pavlovsky, which I, I didn't know that he had there. He was part of this conspiracy, or at least in playing an important role in post-Soviet conspiracy thinking. But so talk talk about him, but also intellectuals more generally like Dugin in the immediate post-Soviet period in forming the the, the framing of conspiracy thinking after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, uh, I mean, I don't want I don't want to create this impression that Gleb Pavlovsky is a conspiracy theorist, uh, par excellence. Uh, certainly, if I put him in the kind of in the same chapter with Alexander Dugin or with uh, Natalia Rachnitska, he's much more important. Let's put it that way. Um, in the process of mainstreaming conspiracy theories. Uh, why I'm so fascinated with the figure of Gleb Pavlovsky is uh, that he was the guy who realized the importance of knowledge, not only academic knowledge, but knowledge in, in, in the general sense of the word, and who managed to use that knowledge uh, to make the power of the, of the Kremlin in the 90s and in the 2000s so solid. So in that sense, I, I, I apply the theory of uh, Michel Foucault, knowledge power, uh, in order to explain how that works. So Gleb Pavlovsky was certainly engaged in the creation of the philosophy of sovereign democracy. So the concept of sovereign democracy that is highly conspiratorial, as I demonstrated in the book, was uh, his intellectual product. And this his intellectual product also included uh, the foundation of various clubs um, or magazines or TV programs, indeed, or book publishing. His book, uh, his uh, public and publishing house, Europa Europe, was uh, crucial in uh, basically publishing key works that criticized the West. And they were also key in publishing very pro-Putin, very pro-Kremlin texts, such as, for example, the speeches of Vladislav Surkov. So all this was done as, as a part of his activities, numerous activities. But uh, I, I looked at his biography. I looked at, 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 the, at the texts that he has written in the 1990s and then late in the 2000s. He was certainly a key uh, character in kind of designing this mechanism of involving various 
intellectuals, various producers of knowledge into the kind of semi-government circles or semi-government organizations in order to turn them into the spokespersons on behalf of the Kremlin. And through, through the television and through the media sources available to the Kremlin in the 2000 and 2010, these spokespersons basically shaped the uh, pro-government conspiracy culture and helped the Kremlin in the critical moments of the post-Soviet history to make sure that the power is not lost from its hands. But here I'd like to divert a little bit uh, from Pavlovsky and look at other intellectuals because they're also quite important. So if you look at, for example, at Alexander Dugin, uh, who is often considered as the major conspiracy theorist, uh, which is true, and, 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 and Dugin has done quite a lot for the promotion of anti-Western conspiracy theories in Russia. But by no means he is the uh, main or the only conspiracy theorist who has done quite a lot for promotion of these ideas. Uh, so, for example, and, uh, and I'm writing about it in the, in the, in the part about Dugin, uh, Dugin certainly was important in bridging two cultures. He was, he was very important in creating the link between European far-right conspiracy culture and the growing post-Soviet Russian conspiracy culture. And, 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 and the fact that he has created this term conspirologia, which is quite normal now in Russian, uh, very, very, a lot of people use the term conspirologia without actually acknowledging that it was Dugin who introduced that term in 1992. And he called this the joyous uh, science of postmodernity, Visola Nauka Postmoderna, that uh, he kind of, he tried to approach the term cr- uh, kind of critically as an academic, but then he slipped into, he slipped into the conspiracy theories again, trying to kind of explain the relevance of his own um, vision of geopolitics, something that he was fascinated about. And so in that sense, Dugin is crucial, but his uh, importance as kind of the the guy who designed all these pro-Kremlin anti-Western conspiracy theories is much more um, inflated by various observers, especially in the West. Uh, And also quite interesting person in that sense, the one who has academic credentials, but at the same time, the one who is uh, kind of sprawling from the Soviet conspiracy culture is Natalia Narachnitska. And and, and I also mentioned her in the the book. Natalia Narachnitska is the person who uses her academic credentials and the fact that she uh, grew up in the academic family to explain that her views of the West are wrong, or uh, that that her views of the West are relevant and important, and they are correct, and she and she promotes them uh, among uh, among ordinary Russians. So she publishes books. She was on the commission on the presidential commission against fake history, uh, and so she was very much involved in the in the pro government circles, and I think she she still is. Uh, but this is quite interesting because she kind of takes 
that for granted that there is an anti-Western conspiracy against Russia, anti-British conspiracy and American conspiracy, and she refers to her father, who was a very important scholar in the Soviet times and who was also kind of important in international relations. But we can imagine what kind of concepts of international relations existed in the Soviet times, right? They, they, were, they, they, they were purely conspiratorial in that sense and purely ideological. Right, uh, but but she she uses she uses this reference to the past, which is important for her kind of for for the, the for the whole conceptual apparatus that she she designed. Uh, that the past is a very important part of Russian national identity, and we have to cherish that past. So, for example, the revolution, and then the white, and then the whites and the reds. All these notions that she promotes, they are highly anti-Western. In that sense, but the fact that she was crucial in in creating this nation building agenda of the Kremlin that tries to kind of put together various periods of of, of controversial Russian history of the twentieth century certainly uh, made her an important character in this pro government intellectual cycle. So just to kind of to the bottom line is that. What is important and interesting, and I think it's going to be one of the next projects of mine, is that the Kremlin in the 2000s created a pool of intellectuals that were crucial in, in, in making sure that the power of the Kremlin is solid and unquestioned. And part of the, and part of the specter of these various intellectual theories, uh, kind of part of these think tanks, part of the, uh, part of the magazines and the book publication houses is the fact that conspiracy theories have been turned into the mainstream uh, element of this intellectual concept. Yeah, and and the other thing too that I, I find found really fascinating, mostly because it I hadn't thought of it before. Because when I think of conspiracy theories, I also think of them as you know fragmenting society, uh, confusing society. Um, which, you know, it, it does all those things. But what you also argue, which is just really interesting in, in the laying the groundwork for this ideological legitimation of the Putin system, is that conspiracy theories, as they're deployed by the state or deployed by these intellectuals, are used as a means to create, a, a un, to unify the nation, to create a notion of national identity. Um, how, how does it, how does do these conspiracy theories or conspiratorial thinking uh, achieve that in in the two thousands and two thousand tens? Well, here I need to kind of refer to the effects that conspiracy theories can can create in society as a populist phenomenon. Conspiracy theories are able to kind of to move large groups of population you know, uh, to to gain a certain goal or to support a certain leader or a certain idea. Uh, in that sense, it is very important to look at how I designed this methodological part of my of my research, but how conspiracy theories have been used in the 2000s for the purpose of, of nation building is also quite interesting. So basically, um, conspiracy theories help to mobilize the nation or the group or community and they also help to explain uh, who is good and who is bad. So who we are and who is against us, who we are not, right? And that kind of division between us and them, it's, it, it's stereotypical of conspiracy theories. It's a, it's a key feature, if you want to, of conspiracy theories. And that could be found anywhere in the world. Uh, we need to define 
what is our identity, who is us, and we need to look at conspiracy theories in that sense as an element of creating or at least of dividing, uh, of separating our identity from the rest of the society or from the rest of the world. So in that sense, if you look at conspiracy theories as the element of nation building, uh, nation building strategies uh, in the post-Soviet time, we also need to consider the fact that in the post-Soviet time, nation building in post-Soviet Russia is a very problematic thing. And, and and so many leaders are struggling to kind of to to explain who the Russians are, and more or less everyone fails to do that. Uh, so after 1991, Boris Yeltsin was trying to design this new idea of Rossiyane, and he also and in a way he failed because as we see in the 2000, especially in 2010, the term Rossiyane more or less um, disappeared from the official political discourse, right? And so, as other scholars, as my colleagues demonstrate, nation-building is basically it's a hostage to political, uh, political st- uh, strategies of the ruling elite. And so, when we talk about conspiracy theories as an element of, of, of um, nation-building, we also need to consider the fact that conspiracy theories can have a very quick and rapid effect on kind of keeping the nation together, keeping this certain group together, right? Because when uh, people are bombarded by the ideas that, you know, the West or the U.S. is against us and we have to act quickly or that um, the West is trying to destroy us as a nation by um, desecrating our churches, as happened during the Pussy Riot affair in 2012. And so this kind of this notion, when it is when it's bombarded, uh, when when people people's minds are bombarded by this notion, that actually that works really well. But again, in a very short term perspective, and so and so this is this is basically what the ruling uh, kind of political intellectual elite wants. They are not trying to create the nation, right? They are not trying to to opt for the strategic long-term projects of creating the unified community of the Russians, but rather they use nation building and this discourse around nation as a certain uh, tactical choice of getting rid of the, of the opponents, of the political opponents, try to suppress the alternative points or trying to suppress kind of questionable uh, positions in the society, such as who is Navalny, for example, right? Or who is Pussy Riot? Why are they trying to present a different view of the Russian nation when we have a clear vision of who we are? We are anything but the, by, but the West, right? And so in that sense, uh, nation building in conspiracy theories again becomes a very useful element of political agenda. So, so all these references to Russians as the nation or Russia as the nation uh, encircled by the enemies, it is an element of popular mobilization. But it's, but it's, it's a very peculiar and unfortunately very unsuccessful way of, of actually creating the nation. It also has, it seems to have another aspect, and that is in the creation or the mobilization of the nation, even on the tactical level, 
the positioning of Putin as the sole defender of the Russian nation against all of these internal and external plots is essentially Putin is positioned as embodying the Russian nation. So he becomes – he his person in a, in an almost very literal sense becomes the only important representation of the Russian nation through – vis-a-vis, you know, the plots and dangers from the inside and outside. Yeah, yeah, he's like a mirror, right? So uh, he he tries, I mean, it's not him, certainly, it's a group of, it's a group of uh, spin doctors around him. Right, but the symbolic, to, symbolically, yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, so certainly, and, and, and that's what I also discuss in my book, how this uh, electoral campaign in 2011-2012 was going, and then once Vladimir Putin was affected by this criticism of the opposition, uh, he was turned into the victim of anti-Western conspiracy theories that gave a gave a boost to the pro-Kremlin campaign. Why does the West and the United States in particular play such an outsized role as the other in this conspiracy in these conspiracy theories? A uh, simple answer would be it's the heritage of the Cold War uh, because the United States appears in this conspiracy culture more or less after the war. Uh, so that's kind of a simple explanation. The a more complicated explanation is that the West is crucial in defining who the Russians are. Right, and that is the process that started in the 18th century, as I mentioned already. And so, in the 19th century, the process of nation building became even more rapid. Um, and so, this notion of the West as the entity that, again, the West is a, is a very convenient term, but it, this term doesn't explain anything. So, if you if you look if you look at uh, the conspiratorial uh, discourse and what Russian authors mean by the West in the post-Soviet time, it's going to be either the US or the UK. So traditional uh, traditional countries that used to be competitors, used to be the geopolitical opponents of Russia, of Russian empire, of the Soviet Union. So there's a very clear political reference to the past. But, but earlier on in the 19th century, the West was considered in a different way, as it, either as a positive model or as a negative model to reject. And so if you look at the writings of Katkov, for example, or Dostoevsky, there's going to be the West, but the West will be represented by various actors, Catholic priests, the Jews, or, uh, or revolutionaries, etc., Freemasons. Uh, so it's, it's going to be a very clear reference. But behind them, there's going to be a bigger power, right? That's someone who actually pulls the strings, right? Because conspiracy theories are uh, also the way of interpreting power relations in the world. So for the Russian elite, the West, let's say the United Kingdom or the British Empire, was a very important competitor that tries to undermine their power. So Russian elite felt fragile in comparison to the British elite that, that really ruled the world, right? And Russian undermodernized empire 
if compared to the to the British Empire, was certainly weaker, right? Uh, in political and military terms. So in that sense, the representation of power was seen in the West. And and, and Russian Russians, Russian elite, political intellectual elite, uh, saw itself as the underdog that challenges this world order, that tries to find its place in the world order. So in that sense, of course, this kind of the notion of the West is crucial for for conspiracy theories. Again, if you look at the another example, a completely different example of the United the United States. In the United States, conspiracy theories uh, were part of the of of the day to day life since the seventeenth century, more or less when when the colonies were uh, created. And so, if you look at uh, the um, kind of a history of conspiracy theories in the United States from the foundation of the state at the end of the 18th century and up until the 2000s, we're going to see that more or less every decade or every two decades, the major kind of character, the major plotter uh, changes because this plotter kind of reflects the major challenges and, and, and problems uh, that society faces. So it used to be kind of bankers, uh, or of, let's say, federal bureaucrats, or the Jews, or the Irish, or the Poles, or whoever, right? So the other that is dangerous for this particular community. But then if you look at the, at the Russian case, certainly the most um, prolific and the most important and the biggest fear is certainly the West. But it doesn't mean that there are, other, that there are no other others which are conspiring against the nation. And here you mentioned China, but, but for example, in, in, in the Asian part of, of Russia, in Siberia, in the Far East, I think if, if we dig deeper, we're going to find uh, quite a few conspiracy theories about, about China. Also, in the 2000s, I remember there was this fear that, that basically China, Chinese infiltrated the Asian part of Russia and they, they, they are almost ready to, you know, disintegrate Russia, to take the piece of, uh, piece of Russia and, and put it under control of China. So that kind of fears, conspiratorial fears, also exist in, 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 among Russian intellectuals and around, among, uh, among the elite. Uh, the, question, the question is, to what extent they are powerful, to what extent they really reflect the ongoing problems in society? or challenges, that's another thing. And in that sense, certainly, the Chinese issue uh, is not the, um, the priority for the Russian intellectuals or political class. Now, now one of the things that it, I, you noted earlier was that in Russia, you had conspiracy theories had two basic trajectories. You had one that was on the state level, and you had one that was flowing through the, the, the dissident currents. And and it's it's really interesting, especially when we look at how, you know, in, in the West, for example, how a lot of Western commentators try to understand Russia. Um, conspiracy plays in a very, you know, present, you know, has a very large presence in, in how commentators analyze Putin, how commentators analyze Russian politics more generally. Um, so what place does conspiratorial, conspiratorial thinking play in trying to understand Russia by by others, by say the Americans or 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 by other you know commentators. But but it's a very good question, and it's it it was even more relevant a couple of years ago, I guess. Well, maybe a year ago. Or so, but then uh, look at the discourse right now. 
do we see a lot of publications that Putin is the puppet master of the White House? Not really, right? So kind of the wave disappeared. But two years ago, when Trump just just won, and the whole Trump-Russia case uh, has been developing, uh, these notions that, that Vladimir Putin is the, is the puppet master was perhaps one of the crucial uh, ideas um, in, American, in the American press, right? <clears throat> so in that sense, if you look at conspiracy theories as a certain kind of sign of the time and try to understand why it happened, it's, it, 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 I have an explanation to that. Uh, so when, when Donald Trump won, it was a shock for so many, for so many intellectuals, for so many, especially uh, left-wing intellectuals in the United States, and they 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 couldn't really comprehend the real reasons of this. Uh, well, in a way, political crisis in the United States, right? So, how come the populist guy uh, gets the gets the seat in the Oval Oval House? when we already had such a nice and liberal Barack Obama. So where are we going? So wh- what, what is the trend? So the, ca- can there be any other explanation, right? And so one of the explanations was found in the possible uh, connection between Trump and Russia. Still, I'm not sure if uh, there is a lot of evidence uh, that Trump really maybe maybe we're gonna maybe we're gonna know something later. Maybe we will discover it. But but for now, what kind of ideas and what kind of problems this conspiracy theory about Russia in the West, in the United States especially, reflect is the fact that uh, American uh, a certain part of the American society could not grasp the fact that there is a problem inside of the United States. Uh, And this problem was very skillfully used by the Trump campaigners that brought him the victory. Well, certainly there was some kind of investment in the digital technologies, in, in Facebook, but it doesn't mean that people who really voted for him and people who really kind of stand by the idea of making America great again or whatever it is, they are genuine. And so for a specific part of uh, American society that voted against Trump, uh, the idea that maybe Putin's uh, contribution to this campaign was crucial in turning America tr- uh, into the Trump empire, basically. Uh, that was um, something unthinkable. But at the same time, it was something that really explained a lot of problems with a very simple answer. Because conspiracy theories tend to explain com- complexities with with a simple uh, with simple answers, simple simple concepts. So in that sense, what we uh, faced a couple of years ago in the American press is certainly uh, this the lack of the clear uh, understanding of the complex problem on the one hand, but at the same time, uh, I would argue that it is the problem of the expertise on contemporary Russia in in the UK and in the US. So there are a lot of experts who could be useful in explaining what happened, but unfortunately the state of the Russian studies uh, after 1991 we know uh, was quite uh, poor. I mean, the, the money from the fields kind of disappeared 
and we had to kind of we're still trying to kind of to recover from the from that uh from that period and so kind of but it's much much easier to discuss contemporary russia uh along the lines of these stereotypes that were partially created by hollywood and by popular culture and it's it's so attractive to the tabloid journalism to explain everything by the plot of Moscow to create this wonderful um, covers as the Time magazine did of uh, the um, San Basil kind of landing on the White House. This is amazing. Visually, it is great, but it doesn't explain a thing, neither to the Russians nor to the, to the Americans, right? And so these conspiracy theories... Uh, that became so popular in a very short period of time, but then I would say now they are more or less disappeared, uh, tell us that even quite, even quite smart people, right? Even those academics that tend to be, you know, in, in, at the avant-garde of intellectual life in academia, they also try to, sometimes they fall into the conspiratorial assumptions, which is a problem on the one hand, it's a problem. But at the same time, it, it means that conspiracy theories uh, are not just the part of the far right or far left uh, ideologies uh, or communities. Everyone could be, a, could be a conspiracy theorist. And to a, certain, to a certain degree, it is okay. Yeah, th- and this lends to my, my last question. And, and one of the things I'm, I'm struck in, in, in your book, too, is that the, the rise of these conspiracy theories from a say underground current to the surface comes in the wake of trauma social traumas political traumas or general states of societal anxiety so here you spoke of after the russian loss of the crimean war also too in the 1880s during the you know modernization rapid industrialization of the of imperial russia during the of course 1917 in the revolution uh in the 1930s you can go down the line and then also to the collapse of soviet union in 1991 so and and this is a kind of general question is now now and and this goes to what you were just saying now it appears that we're in a time where conspiracy theories are more prevalent than ever uh, ever i mean you can you've already pointed to say alex jones here in the united states it it seems that you could turn on the tv and hear conspiratorial thinking or conspiracy theories just in mainstream media outlets yeah on cnn on msnbc all everywhere what what does this say to you about the current state of our kind of collective society, whether it's Russia, Europe, United States, and, and, and how societies are managing the present day or trying to understand the present day? Uh, I think there are two elements to that um, answer. So on the one hand, uh, we, should, we, we definitely should look at conspiracy theories as part of our day-to-day life. And I, I'm not trying to say that uh, conspiracy theories are normal. Uh, they are normal to an, to the extent uh, they could be seen as one of the options in interpreting events, as I said at the very beginning of this interview. But at the same time, uh, why conspiracy theories are turning into the uh, some sort of a danger is that conspiracy theories 
when they are uh, kind of explaining to uh, trying to explain to us certain problems in our societies in Russian, in the British, in the American one, they might have some serious political consequences. So I'm sitting here in Leeds now and I'm thinking about Brexit, right? Because Brexit in a way is the result of a very strong conspiratorial beliefs that the faceless bureaucrats in Brussels or wherever in the world uh, try to impose on the British nation their rules, right? So let's get rid, let's get rid of those faceless plotters, puppet masters, and be this strong country again, right? And 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 one of the consequences of Brexit is certainly the conspiratorial uh, rhetoric, both on the right and on the left of the British society, right? But but at the same time, if you look at the United States, we see that, uh, for example, this idea of QAnon. Uh, that was quite popular a few months ago, that that is also kind of part of the interpretation of reality. But the very weird one, a strange one, what is behind that? Is that, uh, is that a fair um, understanding uh, of how bureaucracy works, right? That there is a deep state and this deep state is actually running the country. So to a certain degree, we can say, well, yeah, I mean, bureaucracy are running our countries. That is part of the modern states, isn't it? <clears throat> so in that sense, there is a deep state in Russia too. The question is nobody, nobody is actually uh, using this as a, as, a, as a conspiracy theory. So, so and then if we, if we look at, let's say, these three cases, the United States, United Kingdom, and Russia, uh, all these societies, as the modern societies, they will have the conspiratorial component as part of this culture. Because conspiracy theories, as I said, help understand or comprehend the changes or the problems that our societies experience. The, uh, what I think is our task as academics is to explain. When we see conspiracy theories, we are not trying to just label them and say, well, that's a conspiracy theory, beware. As I said, we need to we need to try to help uh, journalists or writers or politicians or let's say NGO activists to uh, kind of to to make uh, help them understand uh, what does it mean for our society. But at the same time, we need to find a better way of communicating between different groups within our society. Right, because conspiracy theories become prominent in specific communities because these communities at some point start feeling isolated or 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 repressed, let's say, by the ruling class, and therefore these ideas of the ruling elite that is ruining the lives of ordinary people, they, this idea becomes more prominent, and this idea, which is kind of. Um, supported by various conspiracy theories, it might actually help certain populist politicians uh, to, to, to take the power in the country. Uh, so I think in, this is another task that academics and other activists should do. But at the same time, who is promoting conspiracy theories? It is clear in the case of Russia that a lot of conspiracy theories are being promoted by journalists and by the media. 
And it happens uh, as I, as I, as I wrote in one of the op ads on Open Democracy Russia. It it happens because Russian journalists do not have any ethical guidelines. For them, conspiracy theories is just a good way to increase clickbait or or to to make a career. So if you don't have any principles in your profession, any ethical guidelines, you are free to publish whatever you want. And and if this something that you publish contains conspiracy theories, if your media is not the serious, respectful media that follows certain principles of journalism, but publishes whatever it it wants, uh, namely it's a, it's a, it's a tabloid, right? Or it's a some Telegram channel that you know that is anonymous in a way that that is run by anonymous people, then it's a problem. But when people read that, and when people find themselves in in particular environment in which they are keen to believe into certain specific conspiracy theories, then, you know, we are in trouble because because that is how people nowadays consume information. That was Ilya Yablokov, a senior lecturer in the School of Languages, Cultures, and Societies at the University of Leeds, where he specializes in Russian media and international broadcasting, Russian politics, conspiracy theories, and nation-building in the post-Soviet space. He's the author of Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World, published by Polity. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Block, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high well-borns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!